Hello, everybody. <laughs> it was like a race to see who was going to say it first. This is The Word on the Hill. You were listening to The Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Musset. And I ask you today to put on your headphones. Okay. Turn up the volume. I'm done. And enter into the mystery. This is mysterious. <laughs> that's all, that's all I had. I that's was just want, I was just wanting to do that, you know. That's enough for me. You know, I have to begin this podcast with an apology. Oh no! Your mother, my mom, your mom, okay, told me that I'm too mean to you sometimes on the podcast, Uh-oh. and that, as she pointed out, you are perfect in every other, in every way, <laughs> and always in the right, never in the wrong. <laughs> I apologize not to you, but uh, to Marie Musset oh. for. Ever daring to insult your beloved son on the podcast. <laughs> well, thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> she pulled me aside on the, at the barbecue on Sunday. Dude, that's awesome. We had our uh, outdoor air mass. We have a mass on Fair and Field to start the school year every year, and and uh, it was totally awesome. It, it was, was amazing. It Fair was... and Field is like the big one of the big quads in the middle of the CU campus, surrounded by dorms, and and like and and it was it was the first time. That I've preached that, and I was super relaxed. It's the first time you've talked about vampires. Maybe there's a correlation there. There is probably a correlation. They're vampires. Did you hear that? He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Did he mean it? Are those people vampires? I thought it was a Catholic man. It's a fair... My favorite part was... (laughs) You pointed out there's probably people in their dorm rooms like, yeah, mom, I went to mass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that makes me really happy. I, I always like people like being like, oh, I went to mass. Because I heard them outside. I heard them outside. It could be. Um, well, all that being said, it is the oh. So we uh, we were we were what's hot in iTunes this week. Did you hear about that, dude? You the were big news. You were telling me. I mean, like new and noteworthy. Or no. was it was it what's hot? What's hot? Oh my gosh, we were in what's we are, hot. We are neither new nor noteworthy, but we are hot, hot, dude. We well. were far, we were fairly far down on the what's hot <laughs> section, but that's you know what I'm going to take what we can get. Hey, dude, bring on the lank, baby. Oh, I'm bringing it. Well, you guys, we're going to enter in this week into the twenty second Sunday in ordinary time. It's my favorite Sunday in ordinary time. Deuce, deuce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Dude, so I, oh. I, I have to say that like the I haven't really I, I think I like watched two seconds of the preview of some movie about Compton or something and coming straight out of Compton. Yeah, but it's really funny it's a movie because about Dr. Dre. It's about I kinda Dr. wanna see it. Yeah, I kinda do too because it like it's brought back like this nineties flavor in my heart. What that, was that this, movie like, it brought that came me out all in the nineties that it reminded you of? That I'm sure it reminded you of because it reminded me of it. Oh, where the Bloods in the Crypt in La- yeah. Crypt in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, and, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Where, whereas the dude was in the diapers in the one store, and there was like helicopters and stuff. Probably, I don't know. Yeah, but but I just thought of that, and so we we have a little straight out of Compton flavor going on. Why? Wow, well, where no, did that come from? No, what no, are you no. Talking about? No, we're not. Uh, oh, it was um microphone check, microphone check. Uh, it just brought me back to the nineties. Everything. That's fine. I, the nineties feel like they're alive again. Is Do really they? what I'm trying to say. Do they? Should they? The nineties were good. One they of were my favorite. Innovative. Nineteen ninety six was my favorite year. Dude, 90, that was a fun year. This is the thing. 96 was awesome. 96 was the best. The Bodines were big. The Cranberries were still hanging in there. I was in high school and loving life. 
Dude, I, it was the best, man. And and you know what it was? It was right on the verge of the spiritual awakening in Colorado in '97. Oh, that could be it too. <laughs> this is the thing: is that like, dude, one of the one of the amazing things is if you look at '97, '98 in the history of the church in Colorado in the United States, like, yeah. it was like this huge praise boom. Really. Yeah, man. All the praise music we're listening to, like everything from Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, Lord. yes, yes, Lord. My headphones. I got it all stuck. I got stuck in every one of their heads now. Yep. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Amen. So that was a good time. It was a really good time. Times just got better. They just got really yeah. And then um and then focus got going. Focus got going. Augustine Institute. I became a priest. I became holy grown up. Holy. Yep. So this week uh, in the Deuce Deuce, in the 22nd uh, Sunday in Ordinary Time, uh-huh. our first reading is from Deuteronomos, also known as Deuteronomy. Second law, baby. 4, 1 to 2, and 6 to 8. Jumping from 2 to 6 all the way. Our responsorial psalm. And and we skip over the uh, the Baal figor or whatever. Baal of Peor. Yeah. We skip it? Yeah, yeah we skip it. We I thought it showed up. It. No, it didn't show up. Oh, well. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 15, verses 2 through 3, 3 through 4, and 4 through 5. Boom. Which I think is funny that they don't just say 2 through 5. But that's all right. My, my software does. Oh, but my it's because Verbum it's split up does. into stanzas. Oh, yeah. I got the Verbum software. Verbum's awesome. Verbum's totally sweet. Thank you, you know. Verbum. And uh, you get address. a discount if you uh, buy Verbum and put in Lanky Guys. Lanky Guys. That's us. Yep. Second reading is, is from Jason. Jason. No, that's just what uh, what the abbreviation for James always looks like. J A S. It always throw it never fails to throw me off a little bit. Why did they choose to abbreviate it that way instead of J A M? Jam. Want a little jam? What Jace? Jace. It's just it's always been strange to me. It's one of those curiosities in the liturgical life for me. Curiositas. Or or the the scriptural life. James one seventeen to eighteen, skipping to twenty one B to twenty two, skipping to twenty seven. Is there something else that's abbreviated as J A M? Like why not? James Jamiroquai. Jamiroquai. That's what it is. See, this is Our, today is nineties day on the <laughs> podcast, so I'm going to make all nineties references. Jamiroquai. Wow. For both of you who remember Jamiroquai. Our gospel reading. <laughs> It's coming from. I like Jamiroquai. Yeah, me too. Take that. Our gospel is coming from the Gospel of Mark. We have finally uh, strayed away from John. We had our little uh, hiatus, if you will, into John's gospel, John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse that we've, we've been there for like four or five weeks. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been, it's the best. But now we're back. We're back in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, jumping to 14 through 15, jumping again to 21 through 23. And so. And so. We're going to get into the second law now. Let's jump in, man. Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 2, 6 through 8. Okay. I, I have to say, say it. the Lord is close to these people. At the moment. The, well, no, he's the, always close to the, them. The force, They're not always close to him. The force is strong with this one. Kind of. Do you think so? Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. I mean, so the, who, what other nation has the Lord as close as oh, nobody, Israel? Oh, nobody does. So that's what I mean by the force. Oh, yeah, he's close to them. They're yes. not necessarily close to him all the time. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of like when you had that high school crush and you were like, I love I love her. I will, I will give my life for oh, her. Oh, I thought you were talking about a specific one. Of no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just like, talking what about, are you talking about? Like the general unrequited high school crush. Mm. And you're just like, That's you're rough. just like all about, you know, you're buying roses and mm. writing notes and folding them in, in complex manners. Who was your unrequited high school crush? Allie Bean. 
Ooh. Is she listening? I don't she know. She probably is. Ali Bean, <laughs> you missed your chance. <laughs> you blew it. Oh, okay. she didn't come to the high school reunion, unfortunately. You know was, why? Because she knew you would be there, and it was too hard on her. It was probably true. I can't see that guy. I blew it. That's yep. what was going on in her head. I'm sure of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, here's what's kind of funny about Deuteronomy. Um, last week, we where were we last week? We were in Joshua. So do you remember what we talked about in our first reading last week? Last week was... So here's what I want to say. These two readings, the first reading last week and the first reading this week, are sort of bookends of each other. Okay. Which is interesting that the church has kind of put them in succession. Yeah. This is sort of the beginning of a particular story. Last week's first reading was the end of that story. So if you recall, last week's reading was from the very end of Joshua, where Joshua is about to die. He's led the people into the promised land. They've had varying degrees of success with taking it over and kind of doing what God asked them to do. Right. And he's asking them at the end of their life, are you going to choose to serve God or not? You've been given this law. You've been given these commandments. You've been given your instruction by God. You've been given the, the tools that you need to be the people that God wants you to be because he is close to you, like you said. Are you going to choose for him or not? Right. Um, Deuteronomy, our reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4 this week is the very beginning of that story. At this point, they're about to go into the land. They haven't gone in yet. Moses is still the leader. He's still alive. Joshua hasn't quite taken over yet. They're about to enter into the promised land to do the things that God has asked them to do to varying degrees of success. And this is just before they sort of receive that law. They're going to go to those same two mountains that we talked about last week, Ebal and Shek- uh, Ebal and. Uh, and Gerizim, right. and call out the two laws. These are the blessings if you follow the law. Here's the curses if you're unfaithful. And all of the language in Deuteronomy 4 is, here are the statutes and degrees that I'm about to give you. I am teaching you. I'm going to teach you to observe these things so that you can live and you can take possession of this land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. In your observance of the commandments of the Lord, which I enjoin on you, you shall not add to what I command you or subtract from it. Here's what's interesting. We've already established, we need to establish, that this is already plan B for God. Right. Remember, God initially led them out of the land of Egypt. He wanted to make them a people for his own. He gave them a law that is simple. It's intuitive. doesn't take much to get to. It's the Ten Commandments, right? They fail at that. They don't worship the Lord, um, their God, and him alone. They worship this golden calf. They fall into this incredible sin, not just of worshiping a cow. It's really not about that. It's about the fact that they said the one God who led them, who has made them, who wants to bless them, we reject him. We don't see him for a few minutes, so we're out. We're totally out of this. We're going back to where we were. So we're already in plan B. And God has said, okay, we need to sort of start from the beginning. So I'm going to give you this... I can't trust you in a certain sense with these simple intuitive laws. So we're going to go back and I'm going to show you how you ought to live, which which includes all sorts of things like, look, when you go into the land of Canaan, you're not to interact with the people in the same way because they're going to influence you in unhealthy ways. You're not to eat the food that they eat. You're not to eat the food that the Egyptians ate. You were to not worship these gods. You were to live a different way of life. You were to look, when the people of the world look at you, they should see something different than what they are, and they should be intrigued by it. Because fundamentally, this is what people don't get about the Old Testament. What God wants of the people, the reason he wants them set apart to be different is not because they're better than everyone else. He wants people to look at them and want what Israel has, because God wants the hearts of all nations. The whole mission, the whole reason he wanted them to go into the land of Canaan, I think, was to convert the land of Canaan, not slaughter them. 
And eventually, because they didn't follow that in the beginning, and they waited a long time, and they built armies, and 40 years passed, and there was warfare, and, you know, God always works with plan B. But that wasn't the original plan. He wanted to convert their hearts, and that does happen to some degree. Right. But what we're getting is the front end of what we got last week. And, um, yeah, he's, he's basically saying, look, if you want to be my people, and I want you to be my people— there's a very specific way you have to live. You can't do whatever you feel like. You can't do whatever you want to. You can't say what Israel will sort of become the mantra later on. Look, we have God, so we can do whatever we want to. He's saying, no, you have me, so therefore you must live differently. Mm. You must act courageously. You must sacrifice things because you have me. And the way that people perceive sometimes religion, and especially the Old Testament, is, well, we believe that God's on our side, so we can do what we want to. When in reality, it's the opposite. God is on our side, therefore we have to act differently and sacrifice for the rest. Right. And that's precisely what they can't do. But here at the very kind of beginning of the story, God's saying, look, if you want this to work out, you need to sacrifice. You need to follow me. You need to do what we talked about last week, which is basically put yourself out on the edge. Go out on the limb and do things that are going to seem dangerous because I love you and I'm asking you to do these things in trust, in trust of me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. There you go. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything to add. I mean, I just am. am I'm so intrigued with the fact that that there is a, a recognition and a communication that it says that you are particularly chosen. Yeah. And that because of that, that that chosenness is actually going to put a demand on you. Yeah. And and the way and this it follows the same. Um, the same pattern that it always follows in Scripture when God calls his people to do courageous things, which is beginning by looking back. Right. And so really all of chapter 4 is Moses going back and saying, look at what God has done for you. Look at who he is. Look at the ways in which he has loved you. Now you can move forward in faith because you know who he is. And that's and that's where we get this, this bracketing that we saw from last week's exactly reading. It's, right. this, it's the same recitation of the, of the Lord's mighty deeds. It's also an example of why personal testimony is always the best way to evangelize. And if you, if, even if you read the Gospels, the best evangelization that happens in the Gospels, my favorite story, one of my favorite stories, and remember there was that blind guy in the Gospels who was blind from birth and Jesus comes and heals him and, and the Pharisees are flipping out. They're like, tell us about this guy that healed you. How come you can see? Who is he? What did he do? What, you know, what do you know about him? I remember they begin by going to his parents and like, what happened to your son? They're like, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Right. And they go to him and he's like, who is this guy? What is he, what is he all about? And the guy, you know, I don't know if he's trying to or not, but he gives what I think is the best apologetic right. for the faith, which is just like, I don't really know that much about him. All I know is that I used to be blind. Then I met him. Now I can see. Right. <laughs> Which leaves the Pharisees and the religious leaders speechless. Yes. Because personal testimony you can't refute. No. You can't be like, no, you, your life didn't really change like that. I mean, if I say, like, I used to be this way, I used to pursue my own, my own will and all these things, and then I found Jesus Christ and I found the Catholic Church, and now I'm happier than I used to be. It's hard to be like, no, you're not really happier. I mean, you can't say that. The personal testimony is the best. So every time Israel is about to do something profound, the religious, the leaders... I call them to look back and be like, what has God done for you? How is your life different now than it was before? You used to be slaves. Right. Now you're free. You used to be landless. Now you're about to get land. You used to be a people who are homeless. Now you're about to have a home. 
and that's irrefutable. Like, this is who you are. This is what the change has been wrought in you. But it also always carries with it that responsibility. Now you have to do something about that. If God, you know, and that, that's the, maybe the tragedy of that blind guy in the Gospels that we never hear about him again. Yep. Because he doesn't necessarily, I don't know what happens to him, but we don't hear anything. Does he act upon that? Does he change the way he's living? Or is he just like, oh, I can see now. Great. Okay, see you later. Yep. Which is how most of the people who Jesus heals in the gospel. Remember that there's what's that one story where he heals a bunch of people and only one comes back. He's like, yeah, where are the leper, rest of the you? lepers? Yeah, they're and not they lepers. just take off. They're like, oh, whatever. Whoop de do. <sighs> there's a responsibility. Well, so I there's mean, always a pattern. We, we talk about the, this in ethics with um, that. Uh, what is uh, what is real freedom? And freedom actually is a two sided coin. It's um, freedom is the ability to do what you ought. So it's it's actually freedom and responsibility are in actually in, intrinsically tied to each other. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. so that as as they're looking like they're, they're saying the Lord is saying like we're so close. So you have a freedom, but because of this, there's a real responsibility that you have to take up. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't take Which, it up the freedom is going to actually be used incorrectly and is going to actually be a slavery itself. Which I think is actually a spectacular segue into the psalm. And here's why. Because I'm, I'm, okay. I actually have some thoughts about the psalm this week. Okay. It says, he, uh, one who does justice will live in the presence of the Lord. What's kind of a shame is that we don't get all of the first verse of this psalm, which oh. the first verse is, is maybe the most important one. First, first, same as the first. Second, oh yeah. <laughs> 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 it says, though, um, O Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Right, so this question. Um, or hey, the some, mountain. Yeah, some translations are, Lord, who will abide in your tabernacle or who will rest on your holy mountain? Um, there's a, a great scholar. I love Patrick Henry Reardon in this, this book on the Psalms. But he makes this great connection. I was reading about it this morning about this same kind of question that you find all over the scriptures, especially in the New Testament when you have people coming to the apostles and coming to Jesus and like, sir, what we, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to inherit eternal life? What must I do um, you know, to, to have inherit the works of God, right? This is all over the gospel. It's even in the Psalms too, right? What, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Psalm 23. But it's all over. What must we do? And I think that's kind of, crucial in what we're talking about in the first reading, because they're about to go into the promised land. They're about to become this great nation that God wants them to be. They're going to be a pretty lousy nation, but God wants them to be a great nation. And the question that they should ask is, okay, what must we do to be the people that you're asking us to be, right? Mm. And that's and it, there's something fascinating about the fact that you see that question so often in the New Testament with people coming to Jesus, coming to the apostles, that there is something just inherent in our very souls and in our, in our humanity that knows if we want to be the people that God wants us to be, there actually is a responsibility. Right. What do I have to do to right. get this? What do I have to do to get eternal life? What do right. I have to be? And it's, you know, this is where the great tragedy of Western Christianity goes back to this bad, false assumption that Martin Luther made when he thought that the the dichotomy that you see in the New Testament that you just see with Paul is between doing things and having faith, works versus faith, faith versus works. It, when, was, it was really funny. We we were uh, we did a, a thing called speed faithing. It's like a play off of speed oh, dating yeah, yeah, yeah. the other day and and uh, just yesterday, or two nights ago. And, uh, and we saw some, we saw the Lutheran pastor and he was like, you think that we don't care about works. <laughs> and, 
And we, and Wait, was it Burhop or the other? Yeah, guy? Burhop. And uh, he and, knows how we feel about him. I know it. It was really funny. We were we were just we were just kind of like jazzing each yeah. other and and um, that's the best. But it was really it, it was like two things. And actually, this you were, I was thinking about this earlier um, is that uh, that it was speed faith thing. You had you had 180 seconds to be able to talk to somebody about what makes your faith distinctive from everybody else's. Right. As, and then people would go around and right. and I was like, man, how do you even give testimony? How do you even receive another person to give testimony to them? It was a kind of an absurdity. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it was it was interesting. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea, but and hopefully the goal of it, in fairness to see you, is to to get a spark that begins a conversation that will be much longer than that. That's exactly right. Which, to their credit, but yeah, that's a hard, especially for us. Yeah, we don't have this pithy little like this is what it is to be a Catholic. Yeah, that's a whole worldview. I, I yeah, but but nonetheless, we get into this reality of. But it, it Martin Luther had it wrong. It's not between we're doing good things and just having faith, right? I mean, works of for Saint Paul. Not to get into this, but for Saint Paul, when he talks about the works of the law, he's specific to the laws of Deuteronomy, which we already pointed out. That's Plan B. Right. It's and that's a technical term. The works of the Old Testament law, which everybody knew was Deuteronomy. It's not about doing things versus believing. It's about the fact that we can't rely on the kosher food laws or circumcision or all these things to save us, to make us who we are. We rely on God. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's like, don't rely on those things. Rely on God. But you have to act. You have to make a decision. You have to move forward. And that's what the psalm is all about. The one who does justice, not just who believes in justice or who acknowledges justice or who thinks about justice. The one who does justice will live in the presence of the Lord. Whoever walks blamelessly and does justice, whoever thinks tr- thinks the truth in his heart and slanders not with his tongue, who harms his fellow man, takes up reproach, all this stuff. Right. And what the shame is about, I mean, it's still beautiful and I I love and trust the church, but it is a bummer that we don't have that first line of this psalm because without the question, it's hard to know what the psalm is actually answering. And what the psalm is answering is how do we abide in your tent and how do we sit upon your holy mountain? What it also implies is that there is an end to which we're reaching. Life is not just about going through the motions. Right. Our goal is to be with God, to sit upon his holy mountain, to be face to face with him, to dwell with him in all of eternity. How do we get there? Right. Oh, well, here's how you get there. Right. And I, so I'm bummed out that we don't have that first line, but now you guys all know that it's, uh, it's in there, which is a great segue. A great segue to Jason. To, <laughs> to the book of James. Wait, I think it's actually funny that that Martin Luther is coming up because uh, Martin Luther hated the book of James. He wanted to take it out. Yeah, he, he actually he, did take it out. His editors forced him to put it back in, so he put it in as an appendix. Little skunk. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He took I, out a bunch of books of the Bible, man. He didn't like a lot. He didn't like Revelation, all the Deuterocanonicals he took out. He took out James, took out parts of Matthew. Anyway, that's a whole different. That's a whole different conversation. But we get to do to uh, Jim or James or Here's the Captain thing about Kirk or whatever Captain this is. James T. Kirk. I uh, see where you're going with that. James. <laughs> I don't know why it strikes. It looks like Jason to me. Just who chooses the abbreviations? You do. I wish I did. I wish you. Did I would too. have done it better. But then everyone would say jam. Anyway, um, I, 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 I'm. I was trying to think of a good. I mean, there, there's the obvious connections, which we'll see here in the second reading in a second. But I was also trying to find other connections. And, and one connection, I take it for whatever you will, or maybe leave it. One question that I think is interesting. Okay. Um, 
Israel eventually is going to go off into exile, right? They're not going to follow the law. So what we have set up in Deuteronomy 4, they're receiving this law all the way when we get to chapter, what, 27, 28. They're going to recite the blessings of the curses. They're going to say, if we do God's will, this is going to happen. If we don't, this is going to happen. Part of the don't doing it is the exile that's going to come. They go off into exile. James and some of them come back and they resettle Jerusalem and eventually Jesus is born in that land and is crucified and died and rises again and everything else. But the book of James is believed to have been written. So here's here's the catch. When Israel came back from their um, um, their exile in Babylon, not everybody came back. Actually, a lot of people did not come back. Actually, this is interesting. Up until the 40s, the second largest population of Jewish people. Do you know where it was? Uh, Outside of Israel? Babylon. It, it was it, in Iran. It was in Iraq. It Iraq. was in Baghdad, which is where present which was where Babylon was, the capital of Babylon. So a lot of people actually stayed put where they were. And then there there's what we call the diaspora, where a lot of people just kind of once they were freed from from their slavery, they just kind of settled all over the place. A lot of people came back to Jerusalem and Judea. But a lot of people settled all over, which is why when when Paul goes out on all of his missionary journeys, he's finding synagogues all over the places because there's lots of different groups of people. So it's believed that James is written to Jewish Christians who are part of the diaspora, who never kind of came back to Jerusalem. They were believers. Um, They acknowledged the one true God. They were still Jewish. They had their synagogues, but they didn't come back to Jerusalem. They were still kind of, in a certain sense, living in that state of exile, so to speak. And this is a book that's written to them. It's a letter written to them for encouragement. And I just think that's an interesting connection to not doing that law led to them sort of losing their land, losing their home, having to kind of be at home in a place that's not their home, which is kind of the life of the Christian, isn't it? Right? You know, we're making our home someplace that's, that's temporary. But it's written to that group of people, which I, I don't know. Take it for whatever you will. I was sort of struck, though, by the fact that that's the audience for the book of James that he's going to be telling these things to because there's going to be these built-in reminders, I think, in between the lines of the Deuteronomic law that they did not follow. Then now they're giving this new opportunity through Jesus Christ to go back to the beginning, to be the kind of people they were supposed to be, which is that's the new covenant. That's the new law. That's what Jesus is doing. Sometimes Christians have this wrong in this thought that, oh, God's doing something completely and totally new and unprecedented with Jesus Christ. No, what he's doing is taking us back to who we were supposed to be in the beginning. Right. Making us the people that he designed us to be and giving us the grace that we never had to actually do that, to be the people we're supposed to be. That's the beauty of it. And so that's the exhortation that James is giving. He says, dearest brothers and sisters, uh, every good and every good, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights uh, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. Um, if you jump down, it says, it gives the exhortation, the imperative. Be, be doers of the word. Doers of the word. And not hearers. Not hearers only. Which goes very, Deluding very Deluding yourselves. Which goes for our podcast listeners today. Mm. Oh, I feel very holy because I listen to this podcast. Not if you haven't liked us on Facebook. You're not holy at all. <laughs> and, then, and then you're doers, doers of, of the, the word. Be doers of the Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my. That was really that was over the top, Sorry, man. That was that too was, much. That was beautiful. <laughs> but this is quite frankly, to put it bluntly, this is what Martin Luther hated. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And if you are, it says you're deluding yourselves. Mm. You can't say that you believe in Jesus Christ. You can't say you were a new creation, you were in Christ, and then not do anything about it. 
This is this is the whole point, I think, of uh, the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si about the environment, is that if we are in Christ, if we actually have become new creations, everything that we interact with, every relationship, every part of our lives should actually reflect that, down to the way that we interact with the natural world, to the right. way that we interact with the people around us, to the way that we interact with the people in traffic next to us. Right. All of it should be markedly different because we are now in Christ. And if, yes. we, if our lives don't look different— then you're deluding yourselves, quite frankly, is what James says. And this is a great reiteration of the first reading, is because they're said, you're going to go into this land, you need to do something different. You need to be the kind of people I'm asking you to be, and if you're not, you're just deluding yourselves. Yes. They delude themselves for most of the Old Testament, and then they lose their land. Yep. That's what happens when you delude yourselves. You uh, get your, you get a, your mortgage gets pulled. Your mortgage gets pulled. He pulled the mortgage on the promised land. <laughs> Which is a great way. I mean, th- th- this leads us into this quote um, in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Did you say quoth? Quoth, quoth, quotheleth. Doth quoth Mark. The doth quoth Marks. Um, it, when he quotes Isaiah, it says, "This people honors me with their lips, but mm. their hearts are far from me." Yes, because that because that's really what works come down to. Yes. I mean, like it, you know, James says, uh, "You want to see my faith? I will show you my works." Yeah, absolutely. it's like if, if if you're interested to understand, I I'm going to show you how this is being made concrete in my life. Yeah, um, and and that's where where Jesus is saying, like Isaiah prophesied the same thing, yes. um, but be, because because like he said that um uh, this this book is sealed. It was a mystical vision. Um, that's Ezekiel, it, I thought. Is uh, that Isaiah? Too? I, Isaiah chapter twenty nine. Oh, yeah, my and bad. he says the vision of all of this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Ooh. So it's like they're not opening their Bible. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And he says, uh, and when men give it to one who, who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. Mm. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Wow. And the Lord says, because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, My and goodness. their fear of me is a commandment of men learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will again do marvelous things with this people, wonderful and marvelous. Mm. And the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. So, he's, so that's all Isaiah. That's all Isaiah. And so, so what's happening is Jesus is quoting this. Like, so he's saying that these people are far from me, mm. but the, the way in which I'm going to actually defeat this is I'm going to do new marvelous things. Mm. And what they think is wisdom is going to be totally thrown uh, upended, which Paul quotes later saying, yes. the wisdom of the cross is what I preach. Yeah. And it, it confuses the Jews and it messes with the Greeks. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not palpable to anybody. Yes. so so it's hard and, and difficult and weird. Because nobody seems to say like, oh yeah, let's do the cross. That's a mm. really great idea. Let's just die and be totally misunderstood. <laughs> right. right. That, and, and so so discernment, is now something to where we have to, as Christians, as we live our mystical lives in Christ, yes, we actually must take on this reality of of discerning how the cross is affecting and and influencing all of the ways which in which the Lord is actually leading us, yes. which, which, and and that's why it's like it, that's why it's confusing to have the Lord so close as we were reading in the first reading, He's so close to us. What other nation has a Lord so close? You know, and and we well, and we look, and it says, "Be, be doers of the word." What is being doers of the word? It's actually the cross. It's actually really difficult and weird and misunderstood, and not just so straightforward that it's easy to see. Well, we can't forget with the uh, the idea of uh, what other nation has the Lord so close. 
I mean, we can't forget the, the warning that that gives to us as Catholics. What other religion actually has the Lord so close that it's sitting right over there in that tabernacle right. that you get to actually receive it into your body every day? Right. And that's not reason for us to get high on our horse and be like, we have Jesus, nobody else does. It should give us great pause and saying, whoa, we've been given a tremendous thing. The Israelites were giving something similar, and look what they did. They squandered it. Right. So, I mean, that should give us great pause, which P- is exactly... P-A-W-S, in case you're wondering. <laughs> pause. Pause. We should talk just for a second about the context, though, of uh, of what's happening in um, the reading, because it's interesting. And I think this needs to be pointed out, because here's something that people are going to miss. And, and this is one of the places where Jesus gets falsely accused sometimes uh, by us of of breaking the law when he's actually not. So so here's what here's the the setup for Jesus saying okay. everything you just said the the people are the, their hearts are far from me, you know, all this stuff. Um basically there is these scribes and Pharisees who came down to Jerusalem, they gang up on him as apostles. Um and it says they observed that some of his disciples ate their me- meals with unclean that is unwashed hands. And they say, for the Pharisees, and in fact all Jews, do not eat without carefully washing their hands, keeping in the tradition of the elders, and coming from the marketplace, they do not eat without purifying themselves. And there were many other things that they have traditionally observed, the purification of cups and jugs and kettles and beds. So the Pharisees and scribes questioned him, saying, hey, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders, but instead eat a meal with unclean hands? Mm, Now, what's going on? Is Jesus breaking the Old Testament law? No, he's challenging—well, this is the thing, Deuteronomos— no, no, and this is where people get hung. I, I'm kind of trying to trick you there. You, well, you did because this is where people get confused. Is there any place in Deuteronomy where it talks about people having to clean their hands before they eat a meal? Um, only with uh, uh, touching death ritual p- purification. Right. There's no commandment that says before you have your meal you got to wash your hands. There is a commandment that says the priests before they offer sacrifice must purify their hands, must wash their hands. They can't come in contact with death, all, the, all those things. Right. But here's the thing. If you think about the situation in Jesus' time, uh, they're, they're still living in this kind of period of exile, right? They've lost, the, they're right. back in Jerusalem, but it's not their land. And, it, you know, they still consider themselves in exile. So in an effort to try to figure out, okay, what is God doing? How do we get out of this? How do we become the people we are supposed to be again? This group called the Pharisees said, well, okay, what do we do? Well, how did we get into this situation in the first place? Well, we got in this situation of exile because we were unfaithful to the law. So as far as we can tell, the only way to get back in God's good graces is to be perfectly faithful to the law. And not only perfectly faithful to the law, let's put up a bunch of walls and fences around the law and add other laws so we don't come anywhere near breaking the actual laws because we've got to get through all these other laws that we've created right. ourselves. Right. So the practice and the tradition, not the law, but the tradition that the Pharisees in, in instigated, not instigated, that they, um, whatever, inaugurated. They, they put in place. <laughs> inaugurated. But the tradition that they put in place was that everybody had to wash their hands before meals. That's not a law of the Old Testament. That's a Pharisaic law. It's one of the traditions that they added on, which is when right. Jesus shows up. Remember, he's like, you've yeah, put this yeah. yoke on the back of the people that nobody can carry. Absolutely. Because they were so nervous about breaking the law, they put all of these other barriers so that you didn't actually get close to the law. So, number one, the important thing to point out, one of the important things to point out is Jesus is not breaking the biblical law. And that is a misconception because, and that's one of those things that I've heard lots of people kind of try to dance around and be like, well, he's kind of breaking the law, but there's a good reason for it. And no, he's not. He's breaking the Pharisees' law, which is a man-made law. Right. No, granted, I'm not trying to 
pegged the Pharisees. I mean, I think the law was put there well-intentionedly. Well-intentionedly? Yes. I mean, I get where they're coming from. They're desperate. They don't know what else to do to get back in God's good graces. So I get it. But he's not breaking that law. And the problem is they're making the people do all of these things. Right. But their hearts are far. And it's sort of the flip side of the first reading. And we talked about how, look, this is useless if you don't do something about it. But your doing something is useless if actually your heart hasn't been converted. And if you're actually not giving yourself to God, then the acts that you do, and that's, this is the, I'm actually grateful for this time in history to be a Catholic because these are getting to be sketchy times to be a Catholic. Things are getting weird. The world's kind of ganging up on us. We're seeing in a kind of a negative light in a lot of realms. And the days are going to end, I think, very soon if they're not already gone for the days when you can just kind of be a lukewarm Catholic. And I'm just Catholic because my parents were in my, I was reading uh, this morning of, um, there was that, that, uh, speech that Pope Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, I guess he was just Father Ratzinger at the time, uh, Professor Ratzinger, back in 1969, where he gave that, remember that famous prophecy? He's like, I foresee a time in the future where the church is going to lose basically her status in the culture and all of these things that were just kind of given to her and we're going to be stripped down and it's not going to be convenient to be a Catholic anymore and tons of people will leave and it's going to be hard and we're going to lose our public privileges and the legal privileges we used to have and all this stuff and we're going to have to kind of go back to the roots and the church will begin again in a certain sense and be stronger for it. I think we're entering into those times. I mean, legally and public. Uh, politically and policy-wise and all sorts of things that are getting stripped away from us, it's not an easy time to just go through the motions as a Catholic. No. And I think fundamentally that's going to be a good thing because what the Pharisees are doing is apparently it seems that they're just going through the motions. We're just doing the thing. And I think it's so easy to be a Catholic and just go through the motions. I'm going to go to Mass. I'm going to do my thing. Then I'm going to live however I want to the rest of the week because I've done my Sunday obligation. I've given my hour. I've done my thing. Now I'm going to go live my life. You know what I mean? Yep. And I think those days are, are going away. There's not that much cultural reason anymore to be a cat. I mean, especially here at CU. I mean, we just had this whole crop of thousands of brand new freshmen show up to CU. 30,000 students are here. Mom's not going to make sure you go to Mass. There's nobody that's going to be checking up on you, waking you up in the morning, dragging you out of bed, getting you in the car, and taking you to Mass. There's this weird freedom of, you know, I don't really have to go anymore. And so part of our question as a ministry is, okay, how do we convince these people that it's a good thing to go to Mass? Not just because your mom's making you to, but because you ought to do it, because it's good, because it's something... Cause because the Lord I, is so close, and in fact, we must enact it in concrete ways. And what must I do to enter into his temple and to sit on his holy hill? Yep. I have to go there. I mean, really, that's the implied... At the end of the day, that's the implied answer to the question of the psalm. What must I do to, the, to get to the Lord's holy mountain? Right. Well, the answer for those of us as Catholics is just walk through there. For us, it's a block away. It's over there at the church. Yep. What do I have to do to get to the Lord's tabernacle? Go to your closest Catholic church. Right. That's it. But you do have to get in your car, get on your feet, and actually do it and or go your, there. Or your longboard. Or your longboard or your, uh, your Segway. Scooter. Get on your Segway. I saw somebody writing a Segway. You know, we do Segway tours here in Boulder. Anyway, oh, what, oh I, I meant to point out this just interesting idea. There, there's some scholars. So we've just been on the whole bread of life, bread of life discourse in, yes, Chap- in John. Mark has a very abbreviated version of it, which is why the church focuses on John's during Mark, because Mark's is so short, so we go to the elongated one. That's just happened, though. And isn't it interesting that the Pharisees and the scribes show up and criticize Jesus' disciples for eating stuff without washing their hands, 
right after Jesus on the side of a lake just fed 5,000 people with a bunch of bread. Mm. Could it be that they're hearing about that? They're like, what's going on? What do they do? There's this huge crowd. They're saying it's a miracle. They're eating tons of bread. I bet they didn't wash their hands. Like just trying to find, isn't it ironic though that that just happened? Oh, that's Could really that weird. be what worked them? Like how are they hearing, Who? Do, what do they care if the 12 apostles are washing their hands? How do they know? Well, they would know if there was 5,000 some people not washing their hands. That would have gotten their attention. Now they're like, this Jesus, maybe he's more dangerous than we thought he was. That's a big crowd. What can we get him on? Here's a technicality we can get him on. They didn't wash their hands. Let's go. I just think the historical, the circumstances in the text are interesting. I think it's great. And plus, if you combine that with what we read in John, not only has he done this great miracle, but then he said some incredibly provocative things oh, that sounded yeah. like vampire stuff, like you pointed out at Mass on Sunday. <laughs> you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? What? Okay, what are we going to get him on? It's yeah. like uh, I was thinking about how, who's that gangster from the 1940s that they got him on tax Capone. evasion. Capone, right? They wanted to get him, but they got him on tax evasion. Like, they found a technicality. That's how they nailed him, because they couldn't actually get him. And the Pharisees were like, okay, everybody loves him. He's saying all this stuff. We'll get him on this instead, and we'll trap him. So here's the thing. They're doers as well. Nobody, Nobody's sitting on their bottoms in this. Mm-hmm. To be followers of Jesus, to be the people we're called to be, we right. have to do And part of the reason we have to do something is because the enemies of Christ are also willing to do things. They're not sitting around either. They're doing, they're acting, they're accusing, they're slandering, they're attacking, right? The forces of evil Mm. are after us. I'm not trying to get, you know, over-spiritual or paranoid. We should never do that. But we do have to realize that the powers of the evil one are active. They're doing stuff. They're not sitting around. So it calls us to act as one. What are we called to act as? calling on the name of Jesus saying, give me the grace to do this. And then we'll get it. We have to trust that we will, and we can move forward and go to the holy mountain of the Lord and into his dwellings, his tents. Hmm. Dude, you're on fire. You're on fire. Sorry, I kind of, I think I got excited over that. I think that the people who are listening, if they, if they were not on fire beforehand, word up. I know you're on fire now. I hope so. Don't get into a car accident, though, ah. with your fireness. Yep, and and make sure not just to listen to the podcast, but you got to do something about you gotta it. You got to do something. I th- I know I made a joke about the the Facebook thing. We are like at 880-something likes on Facebook. I think we should get to 1,000, and I'm kind of mad that we're not there yet. Okay. So you guys, get us to 1,000 likes on Facebook, and I then would, I will- I, I would will, like that. I will eat a pie for you. Hey, I'll- I I'll know buy to... myself a cupcake if you do that, uh-huh. and I will have a bite for each of you. You guys are the best. Keep tuning in, and we will talk to you soon. Good night. We'll see you next week. Okay, God bless you. Bye.